Hi, this is Pastor Rob Stone from Duns Creek Baptist Church. We want to thank you so much for listening to our weekly audio sermons podcast. Duns Creek Baptist Church is a community alive by grace and known by love. We long to be a force for good here in Putnam County, Florida. You can learn more about us on the web by visiting dunscreekbaptist.org or visit us any Sunday morning at 1030 a.m. for worship. Now please enjoy the message. All right, and you can have a seat. Thanks so much for being here. Oh, it's a good day in the house. We are kicking off a brand new sermon series today. And you know, where we've been in 2019 as a church, as a community of faith, is we've been journeying together this year through the book of Acts, and we've been looking at our origin story as the church, our history as the church, who we are as followers of Jesus, who we are as the people of God. And you know, one of the things that we've seen as we've kind of journeyed together through the book of Acts is we've seen that from the very beginning, the gospel message, from the very beginning, the church had one clear, compelling, dynamic message, and it was simply that Jesus is alive. And if Jesus is alive, everything else is reoriented in our lives around that truth. That if we believe Jesus is alive, everything else bends around that one truth. So great is the gravitational pull of that truth that our whole lives get a brand new trajectory around it. But here's the thing that you and I struggle with. And here's the thing that the early church struggled with as we're about to discover over the next four weeks is we have to really begin wrestling with a very difficult question. And if you've been raised in church, if you've been raised in a Christian environment, if you've been raised in a religious family, then you and I probably have a very similar struggle with this question. Because the question the church had to wrestle with and the question before us today in the 21st century that we as a community of faith have to struggle with is this. How far does the grace of Jesus go? How far does the grace of Jesus go? Meaning, is Jesus really willing to accept me, to love me, to forgive me, to embrace me, to give me a new identity, to give me a new future, to give me a new life? Is Jesus really willing for me? Because here's the thing. I know what I've done. And we all do a really good job putting on a facade. We all do a really good job putting the makeup on, putting the best face on, putting the best clothes on. But the reality is, when we look in the mirror, we see all that we've done and all that we've said and all that we've thought. And the struggle for us is we have to go, does the grace of Jesus really go that Or maybe you're like me. Maybe you grew up in a Christian environment. Maybe you grew up in church. Maybe you grew up in in Christian culture where you learned all the right and wrong things to do or not do. Where you learned all the right things to say and all the right ways 
to behave. And what can happen if you grow up in that kind of religious environment is that we get infected with a disease I like to call self-righteousness. We get infected with a disease where we start going, yeah, it's a good thing the grace of Jesus went far enough to save me. But we really love to imagine that the grace of Jesus goes far enough to save me and then stops. As if the extent of the grace of Jesus goes just far enough for you and then leaves everyone else. And here's why we like that idea. Here's here's why we respond that way. Because no matter how much we have heard about the grace of Jesus, there's still a part of us that looks at other people with a little judgment. Can we just be honest that we can be some judgmental people? I will tell you three days in Disney. I just, I need to confess to you all that your pastor, as much as I'd love to tell you this isn't the truth, your, your pastor can be pretty judgmental. It's that thing, that, that judgmental nature that I think is in part of all of us. We start looking around and start going, I'm so glad the grace of Jesus saved me, but there's no way the grace of Jesus can save them. There's no way the grace of Jesus can go that far. And so the whole idea behind this sermon series and the reason why we have called it all-inclusive is because we believe that no matter how far you have imagined the grace of Jesus going, I want to tell you today The grace of Jesus goes further than that. No matter how far you think Jesus is willing to go to redeem and restore and rescue and save, no matter how far you think Jesus is willing to go, Jesus was willing to go further than that. And so what we have to face and what we're going to examine over the next four weeks is this truth. That the grace of Jesus will go further for you than you ever hoped it could. And it will go further for others than you ever thought it should. The grace of Jesus will go further for you than you ever hoped it could. Because we know what we've done. We know what we see in the mirror. And when we understand that Jesus, who sees everything, Jesus loves us perfectly, completely, and fully, right where we are, just as we are, and too much to leave us there. When we understand that, we will be so grateful. Our hearts will be so full of gratitude because the grace of Jesus went further than we ever hoped it could. But that also means the grace of Jesus, when we look around at the world, when we look around at others, the grace of Jesus is going to go further than we ever thought it should. The grace of Jesus is going to go just as far for others as it went for you, and in many cases, further. And that's what the early church was struggling with. And here's why I love reading about the early church is because we get to discover that not much has changed in 2,000 years. We are still human beings struggling with the same issues. And so here we are, part one of this sermon series, What's to Stop Me? What's to Stop Me? Let me go ahead and remind you of where we left off. We finished at the end of Acts chapter 7, 
Two weeks ago, Stephen, one of the first seven deacons within the church, had been, um, had been stoned to death. And as he was facing his accusers, he was telling them about all that Jesus has done, about all that Jesus has fulfilled. He's walking them through all the Old Testament to show them that, hey, look, Jesus is the one we have been waiting for, and you haven't seen it. You don't see it. You're missing what's right in front of you. And so, of course, no one likes to be told that, so they execute Stephen. And during his execution, a young Pharisee named Saul is watching everyone's coats. And at the end of that execution, Saul begins to persecute the church. And after Stephen's death, this, the church at the time was just a few thousand, and it was there right in Judea, right around Jerusalem. And as soon as Stephen was executed, the church scattered to every end of the world. And so this is where we're going to begin today in Acts chapter 8. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria. Remember the city of Samaria. Samaria is a big deal. You know the story of the Good Samaritan. Well, the Good Samaritan is is really a powerful story when we understand what Samaritans were to the good, self-righteous Jewish people. We're going to get into that in just a second. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ, and the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had, who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Now, there's much joy in the city of Samaria. Overwhelmingly, at this point in the history of the church, the followers of Jesus are almost 99% Jewish Christians, meaning they are racially, culturally Jewish. They are religiously Jewish. They just believed that Jesus was the fulfillment of their Jewish scriptures. And so when they began to believe in Jesus, they didn't see it as leaving behind Judaism. They felt that Jesus was just this continuation of their Judaism. But the problem with that becomes that the Jewish people had all these rules and all these laws and all this Old Testament scripture, and they thought that all of that made them holy. It made them better. It made them better than them. And that's a really big deal when we talk about Samaria. So here's the history of Samaria. Samaria is a city or region of Israel. It once belonged to the tribe of Manasseh, and it became the capital city of the northern kingdom of Israel and the primary place of idol worship under King Omri, who was one of the kings of the northern kingdom of Israel. And so what once was a tribe of Jewish people, what once was a city in a region where, where Israelites lived, had now become a place that was the capital city of idol worship under a really evil northern king. Now, 
That was about eight centuries before the birth of Christ. And here's the interesting thing about family dynamics. Here's the interesting thing about when there's drama in a family or tension in a family. Family drama doesn't die easy. Because when you have a problem with someone who's a friend, well, we're just not friends anymore, right? When you have a problem with someone at work, you're like, well, you know what? Hey, we're going to have a professional relationship. We work together, but we're not friends, and we don't have to see each other outside of nine to five. But when someone in your family, when someone in your family does something, that wound is deep, and there is not a salve that quickly heals those wounds. So many of us know firsthand what it feels like to be wounded by a family member. Some of us know what it it feels like to carry generational family wounds. Some of you are raising children right now, and you're raising children that are, are really now incorporated into these generations long family conflicts. That's what was happening between the people of Samaria and the people of Judah, or the people of Judea, the people of Jerusalem. Because in the city of Samaria, this was the capital city where idol worship was happening. Jerusalem was where people worshiped the God of Israel. Now, of course, what ends up happening is all kinds of conflict. We have 800 years of war, and some people are defeated in battle, and others are as well. And then the Assyrians come in, and they conquer Samaria, and then the Babylonians come in, and they conquer Jerusalem. And then people, different people groups are taken as slaves, and eventually the Persians come into play, and they're trying to get... So there's, there's a whole long, convoluted history. But here's what happens Because the Roman Empire comes in to Israel and doesn't understand the eight centuries old conflict. And so here's their plan. After the death of Herod the Great, they take Samaria and they go, hey, we're just going to include this in the region of Judea. In this kind of state of Judah that we have, the state of Judea, this, this, this region of our government that's kind of overseen by the same governor, we're just going to include that together. So a government that has no idea of the history between two people groups comes in and says, hey, let's just put you all together. How do you guess that went? According to some historians, by the beginning of the first century, the people of Israel, the, the, the Jewish people, the people of Judah, were holding once a year, a special day of prayer in Jerusalem where people of Judah would come into the temple to pray for the destruction of Samaria. Can you imagine taking God and roping him into your family conflict? That's what they had done. They had roped God into their family conflict. So by the time we get to the ministry of Jesus, the Samarians, the Samaritans, and the people of Jerusalem, the people of Judea, hated each other, hated each other ferociously, so much so that if you were going from Judea to Galilee, you would go east of the Jordan River and add many, many miles onto your journey by foot in order that you would never have to pass through Samaria. That is pretty petty, right? So imagine 
Imagine a bunch of Jewish Christians, a bunch of Christians who have just fled Judea in Jerusalem. And they hear that Philip has brought the gospel message to the city of Samaria. And the entire city is full of joy at the message of the grace of Jesus. If you were a good Jewish Christian, you're going, wait, wait, no, hold on, time out, time out. Come on, no. The grace of Jesus goes this far and stops. The grace of Jesus does not go far enough for them. But it does. Even for them. So I want you right now to put in your mind that deep family conflict. I want you to bring to the forefront of your mind that generations old family conflict. And I want you just to say to yourself in your own mind, the grace of Jesus goes far enough for them. The grace of Jesus goes far enough even for them. grace of Jesus will go further for you than you ever hoped it could and will go further for others than you ever thought it should. We're going to skip to the end of the chapter. So not only has Philip brought this powerful gospel message to the people of Samaria and the people of Samaria are responding, finding out that the grace of Jesus goes far enough even for them. But what we're going to find out at the end of the chapter is Philip is now led by the Holy Spirit to go from Jerusalem, the capital city of Judea, to Gaza, which you may know as the Gaza Strip, essentially this kind of deserted piece of land to the southwest of modern-day Israel, essentially it's, it's the location where in the 1960s where the, the, the war between Egypt and Israel was fought. I mean, this is a place that is kind of desolate. There's not really much there. The only reason people live there today is to kind of make a point. So there are Palestinians who live there to kind of be like, this is our land. And then there are Jewish people who live there going, no, this is our land. But no one really wants to live there. They live there to prove a point. That's Gaza. And this is what we read. Later on in the chapter. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. And was returning, seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. And by the way, I love how the Holy Spirit doesn't command him to get a bullhorn out. The Holy Spirit doesn't command him to go, you know what? It's probably a good time for me, since we've got Ethiopian eunuchs around, for me to stand up and hold up signs, letting them know that God hates Ethiopian eunuchs. Here's what the Holy Spirit says. Hey, hey, go over there. Go, go talk to him. Now, why is this a big deal? How many of you know what a eunuch is? Okay. 
A eunuch refers to a man who has been castrated, typically early enough in his life for this change to have major hormonal consequences, typically a slave to high court. In the ancient world, a eunuch was a slave, a male slave who had been purchased at young age and at young age had been castrated prior to puberty. The idea was that if you took a male slave and took away what makes him a man, that you would essentially have a slave who could serve around women without there ever being threat of anything sexual going on. The eunuch refers to this man who's been castrated. But it goes further than this because what did we see in the scripture? He's an Ethiopian, so he's a foreigner. He's a eunuch. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. Who do you worship in Jerusalem? If you're coming to Jerusalem, what's in Jerusalem? Jerusalem is where the temple to the God of Israel is. An Ethiopian eunuch had come to Jerusalem to worship. And this is what we don't see in the text that I want to help you understand today. What we don't read in the text here is something so big, and it's why I want us to spend so much time talking about this Ethiopian eunuch today. This is according to a professor from the University of Notre Dame. Holiness means wholeness. Thus, eunuchs and people with damaged bodies are prevented from access to the Temple Mount. Their lack of wholeness signals a corresponding lack of holiness. People with damaged family lines are also prevented, for their wholeness is also defective. People defective either in body or family lines are on the perimeter of the temple. Converts may approach closer. Still closer to the center are full Israelites, and closest of all are Levites and priests. This is according to Understanding Jewish Cleanliness by Jerome Nairi of University of Notre Dame. Why do I mention this to you? Because an Ethiopian eunuch had traveled from Africa to Jerusalem to worship the God of Israel and would have arrived at the temple to be told, you can't come in here. You are not welcome. Now, if you had traveled that distance so that you might go worship God, what would it mean to you for the people responsible at the temple to say, yeah, 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 hey, hey, they can come in. They, they can come in, but you, you, there's no hope for you. Ethiopian eunuch had arrived to be told that there was no place for him to worship God that there was no access for him to worship God. So essentially, I want you to understand what he experienced. The Ethiopian eunuch, because he was an Ethiopian, because he was a slave, meaning that he would have no idea who his parents were, because of the fact that he was a eunuch, he had been castrated, he's basically got three for three. Hey, you can't come in here. And if you're a Jew, if you're a good, self-righteous, religious Jew, you believe that access to the temple is access to God. And so if you're being told, 
you've got all this stuff going on in your life and that prevents you from having relationship with Jesus, from having relationship with God. Can you imagine the heartbreak? Essentially, everything about the old religious systems told this person they were out of God's reach, irredeemable and unlovable. And the reality is, I think there are many of us in the room today. And if we're honest about it, somewhere deep down inside, this is how we feel. We come to church, we sing the songs, we try to do the right things, but somewhere deep down inside, we feel like we are just outside of God's reach, irredeemable and unlovable. But this is how the story goes. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah, the prophet, and asked, do you understand what you were reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now remember, Philip is a good Jew. He's a good Jewish Christian who's been invited up into the carriage of an Ethiopian eunuch, of someone who is unclean. Do you think that stops Philip for a second? No chance, because Philip has encountered a Jesus who is alive. And once we have encountered a Jesus who is alive, we understand that the grace of Jesus goes further than we ever imagined. He invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer, it's silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe this generation where his life is taken away from the earth? And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you? Does the prophet say this about himself? Does the prophet say this about himself or about someone else? And I imagine Philip is going, oh boy, oh boy, (laughs) you could not have asked a better question. I'm so glad you're sitting down and we've got a journey to go because I'm going to begin to unpack for you what all of this means. Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized. And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and follow this. And he baptized him. An Ethiopian eunuch. A foreigner, a slave, a eunuch is going You've told me the good news about Jesus. What stops me from being baptized right now? And Philip's response is nothing. Nothing. Because we end up with this view of God somehow that Jesus had did enough. Jesus accomplished enough in his death and in his resurrection to save me. But somehow in order to save them, he's got to be able to die, raise from the dead, and then they've got to add some work on top of it. That's how we treat people. 
We can get so full of the self-righteous idea that we end up going, man, it's a good thing Jesus died and rose again if only it had the power to save them. As if somehow there is anything lacking in the efficacy of the death and resurrection of Jesus. We believe that Jesus died on a Roman cross outside of the city of Jerusalem. We believe that three days later the tomb was empty. We believe he appeared to many, many people who became firsthand eyewitnesses of the fact that Jesus is alive. And we believe that right now, if you know Jesus Christ, that you are a firsthand witness that Jesus is alive. The resurrection of Jesus accomplished all that needs to happen for anyone to be saved. Anyone. For anybody to be saved. Them? Yes, them. Wait, them too? Absolutely. Because the resurrection of Jesus accomplished everything. The resurrection of Jesus is all inclusive. We baptized a teenager from our youth group today. And, and you may be wondering, when we do a baptism here, why do we do it the way we do it? Why do we stop and why do we say, hey, what do you believe? What are you confessing? And then why do we say, in light of that confession, we baptize you? Here's why. Because we believe that that's all salvation takes. Salvation requires no work on your part. Salvation requires that it doesn't require for you to get your life cleaned up. Salvation doesn't require for you to radically be changed in order to be saved. No, salvation tells us that Jesus saves you right where you are just as you are and because of his grace and his holy spirit power, he moves you from death and into life. The grace of Jesus will go further for you than you ever hoped it could and will go further for others than you ever thought it should. The main character for almost the rest of the book of Acts is going to be a man named Saul of Tarsus who will later be known as Paul, the apostle. And in Romans chapter 10, Paul, who had experienced the resurrected Jesus, Paul declared these words. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. You know, if we're really honest, we struggle with this question, how far does the grace of Jesus go? Because the grace of Jesus just seems so unbelievably simple. We, we look at what Christ has done and what he demands of us and we go, it shouldn't be this easy.
But that's the beauty of what Christ has done. He was the one who died the death we deserved. And he was the one who was raised from the dead that you and I might step out of the grave and into a brand new life. He did all of the work. All we have to do is believe and confess. In just a moment, our worship team is going to lead us in a song. But I just wonder today for you if you've been carrying the weight of all you've done for too long. I wonder if you've been looking in the mirror for too long, feeling like who you are and what you've done has somehow put you out of the reach of God's grace. I wonder today if you would understand that the death and resurrection of Jesus is all inclusive. I wonder today if today would be a day for you to believe and confess. In just a moment as we sing, if that's you, I want to invite you, myself and Pastor Tim and some of our deacons are going to be in our living room area. I want to invite you to join us there if that's a decision you need to make today. But I want us to remember no matter where you are and no matter what you've done, I want us to remember today that the grace of Jesus will go further for you than you ever hoped it could and will go further for others than you ever thought it should. And that's the best news there's ever been.